Now, the Gospel of Luke is quite interesting, especially the opening chapters, because you see all sorts of people being mentioned, um, all kinds of people with all kinds of problems and from all kinds of ages uh, and backgrounds. We see that there's a mid-age couple, Elizabeth and Zachariah. Elizabeth was barren. Uh, she wasn't able to have a child, and this was really seen as a di- disgrace, uh, we also see Zechariah is a man who was struggling with doubt. Even when the angel came and said, you're going to have a child, he was struggling with doubt. He was questioning the Lord, and as a result, he wasn't able to speak for, for quite a bit. We also see Mary, who is greatly troubled because she is given an impossible task to, to give birth to a son while she was a virgin. And she has to raise this son, and, and this son happens to be the savior of, of the world. And then you have Joseph, who has to take care of Mary at, at a young age. And then you have the shepherds in the field. They're just minding their own business. They're doing their own thing. And all of a sudden, they see a multitude of angels. And they are the ones who are appointed to bring good news to Mary and Joseph. And so you see all sorts of people from all different backgrounds. Every single one of them, they have some type of issue in their life. And in today's passage, we see Simeon and Anna who are older in age. And I think what The Gospel of Luke is trying to tell us throughout these different people and these stories is this, that the Gospel is for everyone. If there's one thing that these people have in common is this, they all encountered Jesus, they heard the good news of of great joy, and their lives were not the same. That their lives were completely changed, and, 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 and their lives were centered around Jesus. And so we want to continue um. The study in Luke and in today's passage, we see that now it's been a couple of days since Jesus was born. In verse 21, we see that on the eighth day, according to the Jewish custom, you have Jesus being circumcised. Um, and also in verse 22, now, uh, when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, so uh, Mary and Joseph, they're coming from a Jewish background, and so there are some traditions that people had to follow according to the Old Testament. And so at this point, it's been about a month, probably 33 days. Uh, Now they are following the custom that is in Luke 12 and Exodus 13. So they brought Jesus, this baby Jesus. Uh, Now he's kind of an infant, uh, 33 days old. They bring Jesus to the temple for two reasons. Number one, for purification. Number two, for presentation. Purification, in a sense, uh, as um, uh, Leviticus chapter 12, it tells us that when a woman gave birth to a child, she was considered unclean. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details of why this woman was considered unclean, incomplete, um, that she had to be separated from everyone else. But one thing I I can tell you is this. I think the mom would have appreciated that, right? Because when you are considered unclean, one thing that happens is that you are separated from people, that people are not allowed to be near you. And so what happens is you can get rest, the baby can get rest, you don't have to worry about random people visiting and spreading germs. Even today, uh, most mothers, after they give birth, they try to stay away in public settings, they stay home for about a month, and they come out um, and, and, and with a child after about a month. So I don't know all the details of why God would consider um, these women um, clean and incomplete, but I think even in this, you see God's wisdom, how he is protecting um, the, the, the moms here. But on day 33, especially if you had a son, it was, uh, it was required of the law, it says in verse 23, that every male, the firstborn child, would be 
dedicated to the Lord, that they will be set, set apart for the Lord, holy to the Lord. And this is something that we find in Exodus 13 after the people of Israel left Egypt with a bang, right? They, they experienced these 10 plagues. The last plague was that God was going to send a death angel in the land of Egypt, and he was going to judge all the households in the land of Egypt. And the only way that you can escape from this plague was to have the blood of the lamb on your doorpost. Those who did not have the blood of the lamb lost their firstborn and those who had the blood of the Lamb, they, 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 um, they experienced salvation in a way that God did not touch the firstborn. But if you go to Exodus 13, what God says is, I want you, every household of Israel, to set apart your firstborn male. Uh, so if you're the firstborn son, you have this specific place where you are dedicated to the Lord. And later on, when this child would ask the father, why, would I, why, why was I set apart? The father was supposed to explain all the events that took place in, in, in Egypt to explain how God's great salvation uh, was encountered uh, in their ancestors. And so we see that purification and presentation are the two reasons why uh, Mary and Joseph are in the temple uh, after about a month that Jesus was born. But one thing that's interesting is this. As they are here at the temple, they meet two different people, Simeon and Anna, two remarkable individuals. They are not married. They're not a couple, but they have a lot in common. By the way, one thing that we should point out is that in this process, when uh, Mary and Joseph, they were presenting Jesus and they were making a sacrifice according to the law, especially for purification, they were supposed to bring a one-year-old lamb and that was uh, given as, as a burnt offering to fulfill the purification process. But we see in today's passage that Mary and Joseph, they did not bring a lamb, but they brought two pigeons, two doves. And that's quite inter- interesting because in Leviticus chapter 12, it talks about this. It says, if you're not able to bring a lamb, if you can't afford a lamb, you're allowed to bring two pigeons. So that was for poor people. What that tells you is that Jesus was not born in a perfect family that he did not have perfect parents. He, he most likely lived in poverty. Um, it seems like Joseph died at a young age, so as a firstborn son, he was responsible for providing for his family for quite a bit. So all these different things that we see in the Bible, which tells us that you don't have to have the perfect situation or the perfect family to, to live a life of holiness. Jesus, although his circumstances were not perfect, we do see that First of all, Mary and Joseph, they're still willing to obey the law. They're willing to obey God's word. And Jesus, throughout his life, obeyed his parents and lived a life that was set apart for the Lord. And so what the Bible reminds us that is this, that we can't use our circumstances, our situation, to disobey the Lord. We can't use those things as excuse to, to walk away from the Lord, but rather, in our circumstances, in different ways, we should be content and we should try to honor God as much as possible. If your parents are not perfect, still honor God. If your children are not perfect, still honor God. If you don't have much in your family, still honor God. Like, it might not look the same, but there are different ways that you can still honor the Lord. But because of this obedience, because Mary and Joseph were still willing to follow all that God required of them, we see that they are able to meet Simeon and also Anna. And two, a couple of things that they have in common, these two people. First, they, they're both found in the temple. Simeon, we see that uh, in verse 27, that he was led by the Holy Spirit into the temple. But we also see in verse 37, Anna never left the temple. 
Now, this is how a lot of you feel about your parents, that they never leave the temple, they never leave the church. It's as if, like, every night they're going to church and they're living at church. And one thing that breaks my heart sometimes is uh, every time I'm trying to uh, leave the house, and Timothy would ask, well, are, are you going to church again? Uh, and, I, and, and I try to explain to him, well, you know, uh, no, no, I'm, I'm not sleeping at church because uh, there are times, like, we have stuff in the evening. I'm not sleeping at church. By the time I'm back, though, like, uh, yeah, like, he's asleep. He doesn't know I'm back. And the, in the morning, I'm out because, like, morning prayer. And so uh, you kind of say sometimes he thinks I sleep at church. And it's like, no, that's not what I do. I do show up at church quite often. And so I think that's the idea that's being communicated with Anna. When it says that she's always at church, she's, she's not live, physically living at church, but day and night, from sunrise to sundown, she's willing to be at the temple, worshiping the Lord. She's fasting, she is praying, so she is devoted to God. The second thing that we see uh, these two people is that they are both most likely very old in, in I, sh- I shouldn't say old, advanced in years. That's how the Bible says it. Very wise, advanced in years. We don't know exactly how old Simeon is, but we do see in verse 29 when he sees baby Jesus, he's like, I'm ready to die. You can tell that, that he was thinking about the end of his life. Most likely he was waiting and waiting, and he, he's at a place where he's thinking about now, I, I don't have much time left. And finally he encounters Jesus, and, and the first thing that he says is, I'm ready to depart. And so we see that Simeon is quite old. Anna, literally, we're told in verse 36 that she is advanced in years. Her story is quite interesting because she got married, and then she stayed married for seven years, and then she became a widow, the Bible says. And after those seven years, she, she stayed as a widow until 84. Now, you can look at your Bible. There's actually a footnote. I don't, I don't know if you're aware of this. Some Bibles have footnotes, and it's because when you're translating uh, the Bible from Greek to English, there are times when the translation can happen either way. And so the ESV in, in, verse, uh, 30, in verse 37, it says, and then as a widow until she was 84. So it sounds like she's a widow at 84, but there's a footnote that would say that, or a widow for 84 years which means that if she got married around 16, she stayed married for seven years, that's 25, and then she was a widow for 84 years. So this lady is well over 100, like at least 84 years old. That's, 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 that tells you that, no, this woman has stayed a widow for quite a bit. The other thing that we know about these two individuals is that they're both godly. They're faithful to the Lord. It says in verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. He was deeply devoted to God. That he, he, he was all in for, for, for God. And it says in verse 37, Anna, she, she's staying at the temple. Like she's fasting, she's praying. Like everything about her life is revolving around God. And so these are two people who are really godly, who are walking in the way of righteousness. But there's something that's really, really interesting that Luke tells us. It's a very small detail that we often uh, overlook. And it says in verse 25, this is the detail that I want you to see. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. So as part of his godly character, the Bible says that this man was waiting for the consolation, for the comfort, for the hope of Israel. So waiting is paired with godly character. We also see in verse 38, Anna, when she saw Jesus, not only gave thanks to God, but she spoke to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. 
So again, Anna, not only was she waiting for, for Jesus and for God's promises, but it says that she went out her way to share about Jesus to the people who are waiting for the redemption, the restoration of Jerusalem. So both Simeon and Anna were not just righteous people, they were righteous people who were, who were waiting. And this is a big deal because I think our culture, we don't embrace waiting as we should. Like we have such a negative view on waiting. I, I go to the airport and I'm flying economy, right? And then what do I have to do when it's time to board? Well, I have to wait. Um, you go first class goes in first, and then uh, business, and then finally economy can, class can go in. And they say, well, if you don't want to wait, pay, pay more money and upgrade. Uh, a lot of concerts, they would have VIP tickets, and part of the VIP ticket, the option is that they would be able to go in and see uh, the artists, have a conversation. They don't have to wait in line for hours, right? They can enjoy the thing right away. So in our culture, it's almost as if if you don't have money, you have to wait. Or like something is wrong with you if you are waiting for something. King's Dominion. Like I've never been to King's Dominion, but I heard that there's this fast lane thing that you can purchase. $40. I looked up how, 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 how much the tickets are for King's Dominion. Right now, they're on sale, $35. Normally, it's $50. So what King's Dominion is saying is this. You can buy a ticket and get all the rides for $35, but if you don't want to wait pay an extra $40. Like, that's how much we don't like to wait. Like, we have separate options, separate lines for people so that they don't have to wait. And a lot of times, we associate the, the people who don't wait with important people, significant people. A lot of times, when someone is waiting for something, like, we feel like, okay, something is wrong with that person. For example, if, if someone says, well, I'm waiting um, to, to marry a person. I don't want to abuse my relationships in, in dating. I don't just want to put myself out there physically, but I'm waiting. I'm, 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 I want to wait until marriage to have sexual intimacy with someone. And some people will say, well, that's, that's, that's foolish, right? Why would you wait? Waiting is something that, that people would do if they don't know how to have fun. Some people would say, well, I just wanna, don't want to meet anyone like, just, just randomly, but I just want to wait for the right person in marriage. And your friends would say, well, just try. Try to meet this person, that person. I mean, if you tried enough people, you'll know who's the right one. And they devalue waiting. They think that something is wrong with you when you are waiting for the right moment, for the right time, for the right person. Even when we are waiting, for example, with married couples for a, a child, we tend to compare ourselves with others. Uh, in our waiting, we tend to feel in, insignificant, inadequate. We feel like, oh, is something wrong with me in my waiting? So there's this negative view generally, right, that we associate with waiting. But I want to tell you that in the Bible, waiting is a godly virtue. Patience, that is one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the first point I want to make in today's text is this. Waiting on God is an act of worship. Waiting on God is an act of of worship in the Christian life, waiting is not necessarily a bad thing. If you are waiting on the right thing, if you are waiting on God, that is actually a godly thing. Because when you are waiting on God, what you're doing is you're making yourself vulnerable. You're saying to God, God, I trust you more than I trust my judgment. I trust you more than I trust my ways, my thoughts, my ability. 
The reason I'm waiting is not because I can't take matters into my own hands, but I believe that your, your wisdom and your ability is far greater than what I can do. And so I wait patiently. I'm not going to settle for anything less than what you have to offer me. So waiting a lot of times comes with humility and obedience. Waiting is a sign that you trust the Lord. A lot of people think waiting is a waste of time. That God is just wasting your ears, years as you're waiting. But can I tell you that in your waiting, that God is pleased as you are fixated on him. That in your waiting, that you can actually turn that into worship. You can tell every, everyone that as you're waiting, I'm trusting in the Lord. The reason why I can have hope in my waiting is because I know that God at the right time will deliver his promises. So many of us, we're waiting for something, that we have different prayer requests uh, that, that we wrote down in this new year. Maybe some of you, as you're writing your prayer requests, you're like, man, these are the same prayer requests that I had last year or for the past couple of years. And you've been waiting and waiting for God to deliver you from some issue, maybe a health issue, maybe an emotional issue, maybe a friendship issue, maybe um, an issue of loneliness, maybe an issue with finances, maybe an issue between your child or between uh, your parents. Maybe an issue where you are looking for direction and guidance in your career. And, and what the Bible is telling us is this. When we are waiting on the Lord, we're not just wasting time. We are actually worshiping God. If we are faithfully waiting on the Lord, you can trust God. That you can, you can believe that he is going to make things happen at the right timing, in the right way. And this requires us to lose control. This requires us to be dependent on God's timing. And, and so a lot of people don't want to do that. I think one reason why we hate waiting is because we are dependent on something else. We don't know how long we have to wait. We don't know, know exactly if what we're waiting for is, is, is worth it. But I'm telling you, the Bible is reminding us that waiting on the Lord is worth it. It is worth it. So waiting on God is an act of worship. Next time you become impatient and you become um, you say to God, God, I can't wait on you anymore. I just want to make a decision. That's actually revealing something about your heart. It's revealing that you don't really deeply trust the Lord, that he's going to deliver what is good, that you're questioning his goodness. Therefore, you're taking matters into your own hands because you don't believe that he's going to do something that's better than what you can do. But notice that godly waiting is an incredible act of worship. The godliness of these two people are marked with their godly waiting for God's kingdom. So what exactly what they're waiting for? They were waiting for God's kingdom. They were waiting for God's comfort. It says in verse 25, Simeon was someone who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation, the comfort, the hope. Israel was, at this time, it was a suffering nation. That they were oppressed. That they were in pain. Prophet after prophet, God promised the Messiah. However, for years, they haven't experienced the, the coming of the Messiah. For 400 years at this point, there was silence. There wasn't a single prophet that was speaking of the Messiah anymore. And so there is this dark period of waiting. And in the midst of that waiting, God tells Simeon in verse 26, he revealed to Simeon by the, his Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. I mean, that, that's an awesome thought, right? Like for 400 years, God didn't even speak about this Messiah. And yet God shows up and tells Simeon that you're actually going to meet this Messiah. That you're going to see this Messiah, this Christ for yourself. And can you, can you imagine the excitement that Simeon had? That, that he was going to encounter this Savior? Also, I'm sure that it was hard for him. Because he could have easily questioned God for 400 years. What were you doing? Why would you reveal your Savior to me? And yet Simeon, he decides to wait. 
He decides to wait upon the restoration of, of, of hope in the people of Israel. But also we see in Anna in verse 38 that when she was sharing this good news to people, there were people who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, which means that there were people who were waiting for, for God to rescue them, to restore them. And so you see that as you wait upon the Lord, what God has to offer you is, number one, comfort, healing, but also he is willing to rescue you, save you from your problems. And so God, he's leading and guiding his people. And true Christians, they are longing for, for, for the Lord to show up. They have this deep longing that God will bring comfort, that God will bring restoration to their life. And how many of you this morning can use some, some comfort from the Lord? How many of you can use some, some from restoration uh, from the Lord that you are looking for answers? You, there's a problem that you've been dealing with for years and years and, and you're waiting upon the Lord. And what the Bible is telling us today is that your waiting is not a waste of time. That he wants us to wait. So what exactly uh, was God, uh, what was Simeon and Anna waiting for? They were waiting for, for this Messiah. For, for the salvation uh, for God's people. But we see that God answers Simeon and Anna through a child. It says in verse 27, And he, became, he came in the, in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do him according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took him up, Jesus up, in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. I, did, I think this is quite amazing because, uh, no, literally, I'm, I'm, I'm picturing Mary holding Jesus, right? And the moment Simeon sees Jesus, like, he knows that, that that's it. Like, he's the baby. He's, he's the savior. And he snatches Jesus from the arms of Mary, like, like, I don't know what that was like, but maybe, I don't know, Mary was filled with the Holy Spirit too, so she was okay with that. But Simeon, his first words is, is this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. In other words, I'm ready to die. Like, I can have peace as I face death. And he's not suicidal, by the way. He's not like, I'm so sick of this life. That finally, you fulfill your promise. I'm, I'm ready to leave this world. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying is, what he's saying is this, everything that I've been hoping for has been accomplished through this one son. There's nothing more that I'd rather have in this life. So there's nothing better that this life has to offer. If I encounter Jesus, like, man, there's nothing else that's left for me. So he says, I'm ready to depart in peace because this Savior, I know that I can have peace with God even in my death. Even though I'm a sinner, because of the work that this child is going to do, that I can depart in feet. I can face death with confidence, knowing that there's going to be healing and restoration on the other side. And so he says in verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. That is so important because what Simeon is saying is this, salvation is not found in an action that you do. It's found in a person that you see. Salvation is found in a person. Other religions would say that in order for you to experience salvation, that you have to do good, you have to work hard, that you have to achieve a certain status in your life and be a certain person. What the Bible tells us is this, salvation is found in one place. It's in Jesus Christ. And if you have see Jesus with the right eyes, as Simeon is seeing Jesus, not as a baby, but as his savior, as the Messiah, then you can experience this salvation. God's salvation is found in a person, not in a place or not in a practice. So the second point I want to make is this. Jesus is worth waiting. 
Jesus is worth the wait. He's worth waiting. Finally, when, when, when Simeon sees Jesus, he's like, my wait is over. I, I no longer have to wait because this is what I've been waiting for. Jesus, he is what I've, I've been waiting for. He's the person that I've been longing for all this time. The question is, do you see Jesus in the same way? Is he the one who satisfies all your needs? Is he the one who brings comfort and peace to your heart? Is he the one who restores your broken relationship with God? If so, then there's nothing else that you would long for in your life. It says in verse 31 that you prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. So this comfort is not just for the people of Israel, ethnic Israel, but it's given to all Gentiles, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Salvation is made available to everyone. If, if, if those who would believe, it's made available to everyone. So Jesus is, is worth the wait. That's the point that, that, that Simeon is making. And he pushes this point a bit further when he talks to Mary. Now, as Simeon is saying, uh, singing these words, uh, Mary, Joseph, they are amazed, the Bible says. But something interesting happens. It says in verse 34, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, the mother of Jesus, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. In verse 35, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What is, what is Simeon saying to Mary? Two things. Number one, what, she, what he's saying to her is this. Jesus is going to divide people. There, there are going to be people who rise, people who fall because of Jesus. Because of this child, there are going to be people who experience salvation. There are going to be people who experience God's condemnation. And we see that there are going to be a good number of people who oppose Jesus. You know, sometimes people ask the question, well, why do people hate Jesus? Like, you know, why do people go against Jesus? Well, it's not the person of Jesus. He's such a loving guy. Like, he cares for the poor. He's, he, he, he's, he's the most lovable guy. But the problem is that his message divides people. Because what he says in his message is that I am the king, that I, I demand your allegiance. What he says is that you are a sinner and I am your Savior. What he says is quite hard for us to swallow. We, that we need to humble ourselves before Jesus to really embrace him as our Lord and our Savior. And many people don't want to do that. Many people would rather ignore Jesus and oppose Jesus than, than lay down their lives for Jesus and surrender to Jesus. So we see that Jesus is causing division among people. Not because he's trying to destroy people, but his message is so clear that it causes division. But the second thing that we see is in the specific words to Mary, Jesus might cause pain and, and heartaches um, in, as you believe in him. What Simeon says to Mary is this, that there's a big sword. And in the Greek, this is not just a tiny sword. It's a big sword that's going to pierce your heart. And so what exactly is Simeon saying? Well, some people believe that raising Jesus is, is a hard job. Uh, there are going to be opposition. Even the family of Jesus, the brothers, they turn against Jesus later on. And some people believe that even Mary turned against Jesus at one point. Uh, and so there's going to be a lot of drama and confusion, even in Mary's heart. But some people believe that this is pointing to the cross, where Mary's going to endure one of the most worst sufferings that anyone can endure, um, where it's not that this mother is just going to see 
her son die before her, but with her very own eyes, she's going to see her son be tortured, suffer on the cross, be shamed in such a way, and, and, and his son is slowly, her son is slowly dying. And this sorrow, this pain is going to penetrate Mary's heart. And so Simeon is warning us this morning that believing in Jesus is not just an easy road to follow, but there's pain, that there's suffering, there's opposition that come, comes our way. The question is, are we still willing to wait on Jesus? Now, there are four places that you see the word waiting, um, the Greek word that's translated into waiting in our passage today. Number one is with Simeon. Number two is with Anna. There's another place where Jesus tells a parable where he's talking about servants who are waiting for a master. But the last place is actually found at the end of the gospel in Luke 23. And if you have your Bible open, I encourage you to open to Luke 23, verse 50. Uh, we'll, we'll end here. No, this is something new. Like, I, I think I read the, the gospel of Luke many times, but like, this is the first time I kind of made this connection as I was studying today's passage. Luke chapter 23, verse 50. This is when Jesus already, he died on the cross. Uh, everything is done. It is finished. And people are trying to figure out what to do with this dead body. And we see in verse 50, there's a man named Joseph. This is a different Joseph. This is not the, the, the father of Jesus. He's a member of the council, a good and righteous man. What that means is he's part of the religious uh, leaders. That he's, he's one of the spiritual leaders of, of, of Israel. And so he's well-respected, and you know that the spiritual leaders of Israel made a decision to crucify Jesus. They're the ones who accused Jesus to the Roman court. And so he's among enemies. Like, he's among people who wanted Jesus dead. And it says, though, that he was a good and righteous man, similar to how the Bible describes Simeon or how the Bible describes Anna. But it says in verse 51, as they were making a decision on what to do with Jesus' dead body, it says he was looking for the kingdom of God. That word looking, by the way, is the same Greek word that's translated in our passage today, waiting. So in other words, it says that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. And as he's waiting for the kingdom of God, because he placed his hope, his longing, not on the things of this world, but on Jesus. Notice what it says in verse 52. He has the courage to stand up before Pilate, this Roman governor who just sent, sentenced Jesus to death. He stands before Pilate and he asks for Jesus' dead body. He says, I want Jesus' dead body. Like, don't take it away, give, give it to me. And it says in verse 53, he took it down and wrapped it up and laid it in a tomb cut in stone and no one had ever yet been laid. So he makes a remarkable action of faith where in the midst of all his friends who were wanting to kill Jesus in, in front of this Roman governor who actually sentenced Jesus to the cross, he says, give me Jesus' dead body because I want to take care of it. Like he didn't do this in a sneaky way. He said straight up, hey, I want to honor Jesus and take care of his, his body. You see, those who wait on Jesus respond in obedience. Those who wait on Jesus, regardless of all the pain and the sorrow and the opposition, and you can imagine how Simeon had felt at this point. He saw Jesus die on the cross. Like he's experiencing this pain and sorrow and doubt and questioning, and yet because he placed his hope on the Lord. He's waiting for God's kingdom. He's able to still walk faithfully and honor God in everything. I think some people ask the question, well, if I'm waiting on the Lord, what should I do right now? And the answer to that question, I think, is found in today's passage, what, what Anna did as she was waiting for all those different years 
It said that she was praying, she was fasting, and she was worshiping God. You don't have to pause everything when you're waiting, but you can still worship the Lord. You can still seek his face. In our waiting, we're not just waiting for something to happen, but we're worshiping God, that we're still putting God in, 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 in the front, front of our lives, that we're trusting that he's going to make a difference. So waiting on God is an act of worship, and waiting on Jesus is, is worth it. That he's going to change your waiting to joy. And in many ways, we are people who are waiting for Jesus too. Did you know that? That we don't just look at this first coming of Jesus, but we are waiting for the second coming of Jesus. I don't know if you ever read the book of Revelation, but three times in the ending chapter of the book of Revelation, Jesus says, just, just know that, behold, I'm coming. That I'm going to return. That I'm going to make all things new. There's going to be a new heaven and new earth, a place where there is no longer any tears, any sorrow, any pain. That, that evil is going to be no more. Sin will be no more. That there will be no darkness anymore. There's not going to be a need for the sun because God's glory is going to fill that place. And you see this beautiful promise and Jesus is going to return and make all things new. And if we believe in that promise, what should we do about our life right now? If Jesus were to return tomorrow, what would you do today? Would you still live the same way? Do the same things? Watch the same stuff? Spend the, your time the same way? Or would you go out? First of all, thank the Lord that he's coming. And second, share this good news because there are people who are unaware that there is judgment coming. We see that this same principle of waiting can be applied to our lives. Now, waiting reveals what we really long for in our hearts. What you're waiting on, it's probably what you're worshiping deep in your hearts, what you're loving deep in your hearts. And what the Bible is telling us today is this. There's nothing that's worth longing for than Jesus Christ. And you'll never be disappointed when you wait. And when you do wait, you don't just have to wait and hit the pause button, but you can still faithfully live for his glory and honor him. Worship him in your waiting. God is not wasting your time. He's simply revealing what's in your heart so that you can refine your faith and trust him and honor him in every part of your life. Amen? Let's pray.